intimacy. We'll do most of our singing at the end of the service tonight as an act of commitment to the Lord and an act of praise to Him. But I want to remind you about the definition of what the Christian life looks like and what spiritual intimacy looks like. It is the life of Christ reproduced in the believer by the Holy Spirit through abiding in the Word. It is the life of Christ reproduced in the believer by the Holy Spirit through abiding in the Word. Now, the last time we looked at this, and this is the second part of this one, is we looked at four truths. First of all, intimacy is a process. You don't become intimate in a moment. There may be a crisis event where you pass from death unto life, but intimacy is a process. You didn't fall in love in a moment. Somebody says, oh, I looked at them and I fell in love immediately. Well, yeah and no. It's a process. Number two, intimacy is based on obedience. It's based on obedience. Intimacy is, is not based on head knowledge. I know a lot of stuff, but on obedience to God. If I'm intimate with God, then I will obey what He says because of a love relationship with Him. Thirdly, intimacy is an inside job. It's not external. That was the problem with Pharisees. They, they always thought that intimacy with God and a deep walk with God was, a, was on the outside. And there are people that still believe that today. In the 21st century, this far removed from the teachings of Jesus Christ, we still have people that think intimacy is about what you do on the outside. But it's inside us that matters. Number four, intimacy is cultivated. It's not automatic. It's cultivated. Some of you were athletes, or you thought you were, when you were growing up. And somewhere along the line, some coach said to you, no pain, no gain. You got to work hard. You got to stay in shape. And, and you know, if you're going to run a race, if you're going to compete for a prize, which Paul used an athletic illustration for the Christian life, then you have to be in shape. And to be in shape is a process. You know, I've got a wonderful treadmill in our bedroom. It's amazing how many clothes you can hang on that thing. It's absolutely incredible. In fact, I can stack my shoes on it. It's just amazing what you can do with a treadmill besides use it for what it's intended to be used for. And I walk by it every day and I go, God bless you. God bless you. Let me have some of that without making the effort of doing what I need to do. And every time I go to see my doctor, he says, are you walking? I'm walking by my treadmill. Sits right there. I get out of bed in the morning and there it is, right there. Nice. Still paying for it. Still smells new. Not using it like I need to. You see, there's a process here because spirituality is not automatic. Just because you buy a piece of equipment to get in shape doesn't mean you're going to get in shape. Just because you get a Bible and sit in a Sunday school class doesn't mean that you're going to have an intimate relationship with Christ. It is something that has to be cultivated. So let's look at several things. First of all, it is the life of Christ 
Now, the difficulty for many people in intimacy is they are in bondage to rules and regulations. They're in bondage to legalism. The only thing legalism ever produced in a believer is pride. Legalism never produces humility. Legalism never produces godliness. It produces religious pride. Turn to the book of Galatians, if you would. The book of Galatians. I remember when I first came here, I, I preached through Galatians for about a year, and, and I thought often about going back and, and looking at that again, where we are today as opposed to where we were then. But Galatians, Paul deals with this problem of license, liberty, and legalism. You've got people at both ends of the extremes, and we love to go to extremes in the Christian life. We'll go to the extreme of license. I can live however I want to live because I'm saved. It doesn't matter what I do, I'm going to go to heaven. Or we can go to legalism. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. You know, I just, you know, I don't do anything. Well, you know, neither does a fence post, but that's beside the point. And yet the Christian life is not about the extremes. It's about balance. And the balance is liberty. And I, when I look at Galatians, look at Galatians 2, verse 4, and then we'll drop down just a little bit. Galatians 2, 4 talks about the false brethren, people who say they're Christians, say they're believers, but they're false, they're liars, who sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into what? Bondage. There are people who will always come into our lives and say, if you want to be godly, you need to do this and this and this. And they're really what they're doing is they're putting you into bondage because they're not helping you and I to build a relationship with Christ. They're just helping us check the box to make sure we've got our envelope all checked out and ready to go. And what Christ is trying to do in our lives is to give us liberty. Look at verse 16. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, Jesus, uh, let's say, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. That means that nobody who's trying to get close to God, right with God, saved, whatever term you want to use, nobody is going to be justified by keeping the works of the law. Again, that's what the Pharisees try to do. And the greatest danger is to backslide in our Christian life out of the liberty and freedom that we experience when we find forgiveness of sin into rituals and tradition of men. Can I give you a Brief, simple definition of legalism. This is the way I define legalism. Legalism is a bad caricature of Christianity. It's a bad caricature of Christianity. When you look at it, it doesn't look anything like Christianity looks like in the New Testament. Legalism doesn't look like Christ. It looks like a bunch of stuffy Pharisees, self-righteous Sadducees, and there are people, you know, they just, they're so caught up in this stuff. But you and I do not get to heaven by keeping rules. And we don't become holy 
by keeping rules. We become holy by walking and living in a relationship with Christ. Now let me just kind of go through the New Testament and sum up some of these phrases that God gives us about our life in Him. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul did not say, check all the boxes, the hope of glory. Be like this, the hope of glory. He says it's Christ in you. The very hope of glory is the fact that Christ is in you. But He says, because I live, you shall live also. So where's my living? It's because of Christ is alive. The Scripture says, you in me and I in you. Now, if you want to know a phrase that Jesus sums up, we'll look at this in just a moment. But if there's a phrase that sums up what God came to do in us, it is that phrase. You in me and I in you. It's a partnership. We give ourselves to God, God gives himself to us, and there's an intimacy in the relationship. It's not a one-sided deal. Ninety-five times in the New Testament you find the words in Christ. You and I are to be in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, By His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became in us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. For as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Every one of us have met someone who boasts in what they don't do. You ever notice that most of those people never boast in what they do for God? They boast in what they don't do. Oh, I don't do that. What? Well, I don't do that. Well, I, I, don't, I don't do that. You know, I, I don't go to a lot of movies, but I remember when I first came here and I was in the movie theater. It was over at the old Carmike thing. And Now, this is what's funny. What's funny is I ran into church members at the movie theater, and this was what they said. <gasps> You go to movies? And I'm going, you go to movies? As if God's got a different standard for preachers than he does for anybody else. Isn't the standard the same for all of us? It's not like, oh, well, there's some that can do this and some that can't. And it was just such a hang-up about movies. And, you know, I grew up in the times when it was bingo and cards and women wearing lipstick and all those kind of things. And, you know, can I just give you a Greek word for that? Stupid. Most of the people I meet who live their Christian life, if that's what you want to call it, on that level, look like they're as mean as a snake. I mean, they just look mad at everybody. Bless God, I love Jesus. Hallelujah. Boy, it's great to be a Christian. Burn in hell, you pagan dog. I mean, you know, that just, just it's so warm. It just attracts you in, doesn't it? It just makes you want to get up on Sunday morning and go, let me go be around people that look like they've just been sucking a lemon all their life. Let me just go be around those kind of people. The Christian life is built on intimacy. The nature of the life is a life of Christ. Turn to John chapter 15. One of the favorite series I, was, I ever did here was the series on John 15. And I love doing it because John 15 is the essence of the nature of the life of Christ and what it means 
in us and to us. John 15 and verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, if you're not abiding, there's no fruit in your life from God. You may be given off some kind of evidence of something, but it's not from God. It's of self-righteousness. He said, if you abide in me, then it's going to produce a fruit that looks like something that's been abiding in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now let me just give you a statement to write in the margin of your Bible or somewhere on your notes. Intimacy is getting to know a person, not a proposition. Intimacy is getting to know a person, not a proposition or a principle. If I'm going to be intimate with God, I can know a lot about Him, but it is abiding in Him in which that intimacy is developed. It is not what I do for God, but what God does through me, and that takes all the pressure off. I I see so many believers and people that, you know, especially when I'm out in other places, sometimes I, I just... I see people and they're so stressed out because they're, they're trying to get better. They're working hard at getting better. They're, they're gritting their teeth and they're, they're sucking it up and they're, they're trying to do better than they did last year and they're, <clears throat> they're making rededications and, you know, some people are rededicating things that have never been dedicated. And they're just making decisions and making decisions, you know, hoping that maybe the 15th time I get baptized or the 45th time I walk the aisle, Maybe that'll be the magic moment. And that's not it. Now, you need to understand something. There's two or three statements here that I I want you to get. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. Apart from me... You can do nothing. That means that it's not just hard. I can't do it. I can't live it. Second statement. The only thing that God ever expects of you is failure. The only thing that God ever expects of you is failure. Why? You didn't need to be saved if He expected you to be successful. What is Jesus trying to say to us? What is Paul trying to say to us? What is... Peter tried to teach us. They try to teach us that it not only begins by faith, it continues by faith, it ends by faith, it starts with Christ, it continues with Christ, and it ends in Christ. Everything about the Christian life is based on Christ. And the only person who's ever been continuously victorious is Christ. 
So if I want to walk in victory, it's got to be Christ in me. Not me trying to suck it up and try harder. You see, there's something about the Christian life that is so alien to the way we think. You have to give to get. If you want to be great, you got to be a servant. If you want to find your life, you have to lose your life. It doesn't make sense. God's Word is full of paradox. If I want to walk in victory, I have to surrender. Why? Because God does not want us depending on our old sorry flesh to try to work up something that we can't work up and succeed at. And so He's trying to teach us that it is in Christ and through Christ that we walk in intimacy. Jesus didn't come to fix my life. Jesus came to be my life. He didn't come to put band-aids on me. He came to overhaul me. He didn't come just to give me a tune-up and say, well, you know, you got a couple of spark plugs out there, cat, and we just need to kind of put a couple of plugs in, and you just, man, you'll be going, you, you'll be go fine for 3,000 miles, won't need another tune-up. What he wants me to understand, he wants you to understand, is every day, in every way, in every situation, I will fail to be what God wants me to be if I haven't developed an intimate relationship with Christ. I'll blow it. I'll not be what he wants me to be. I'll, I'll fall back on my flesh, and I'll try to please God with some deed of my flesh, and I'll try to work something up that maybe God will applaud me and tell me, well done. And sometimes we look at God the Father like he's a coach or like he's a band director or like he's a teacher or our earthly parents, and we think, if I do enough stuff, then they'll love me. We can't love you anymore, but the truth of the matter is you can't do enough stuff to be like Jesus. He has to do it through you. You say, that's hard to understand. Yeah, it is. That's why the Gospel of John says over and over, it's you and me and I in you. It's a cause and effect relationship. Now, positionally, I'm in Christ. In practice, it's you in me. John 14, 20, in that day... You shall know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, go down, just drop over to John 14, 20, and write down by it Philippians 1, 21. Because Philippians 1, 21 is the application of John 14, 20. John 14, 20 says, In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Philippians 1, 21 says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you want to know how John 14, 20 works, it works by looking at Philippians 1, 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now for every one of us, there has to come a point in our lives when we say, for me to live is blank. What? What is it for you? For you to live. What, what is it? What would fill in that blank for you? I mean, just you alone by yourself, not giving the Sunday school answer, not giving the answer everybody expects from you, but just you alone with God, really, 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 what is it for you to live is what? And to die is what? Is it true that of our lives, that for me to live is Christ? 
Because you see, whatever you're living for, that's what you're going to die for. If you're living for yourself, you're going to die for yourself. And to lose anything you've been living for is not gain, it's loss. But if for you to live is Christ, then to die is to gain more of Christ. That's why we have hope. That's why we come to funerals and we're sorry and and we're we're sad and, and yet there's hope. Because this person has gained more of Christ. Why? To live is Christ. To die is gain. To gain more of Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. Paul was intoxicated, if you will, in Christ. He was overwhelmed in Christ. Ephesians 3. And verse 16. I want you to see a phrase in the middle of this passage. Paul is writing to Christians. These are people who already have Christ in their life. They already know Christ. They die, they're going to go to heaven. And Paul is writing to them in Ephesians 3.16. He says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Again, it's an inside job. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, how do I get filled up to all the fullness of God? Well, he says it right there, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, he's already dwelling in your hearts. What's he saying that for? This is a Greek word of intensity, that Christ may abundantly dwell, richly dwell, overwhelmingly dwell. In fact, a good way to translate that is that Christ would be at home in your heart. That Christ would be at home in your heart. Now let me ask you a question. Is Christ at home in your heart? In the way you live and the conversations you have and the choices that you make, is He at home in your heart? When I was... uh, Going through college, I did a lot of youth revivals, and I, I would typically stay in somebody's house. I, I remember one house I, I stayed in. It was a old preacher. He, he didn't have any education at all. He just loved Jesus. And I had the front bedroom, which was about five yards from the railroad track. And every night at two and at four, well, their bedroom was on the back of the house. If I'm going to make myself at home, you know, he said, make yourself at home. Well, I think I'll just go back to the back. Hey, can I, can I come back here and sleep with y'all? Not as close to the track. You know, people say, well, just make yourself at home. Okay, let me look in all the closets, see what you got in there. I, I remember we had a fellowship. I don't remember what it was. It was right after we got here, the first year we were here. We had a fellowship at our house, and I walked in the, my bedroom and there was a woman standing looking through my closet. I'm going, hello. 
Hello, I don't come to your house and look in your closet. Well, you said make yourself at home, so I'm just seeing if your closet was organized. Well, I just want to know if your husband's still ugly, you know. <laughs> Hello. You see, we say, well, make yourself at home. Well, don't put your feet on the table. No, don't do that. Don't leave your dishes sitting out. We don't really mean that. We, we've got family connections with, with a, a family up in North Georgia, and, and I went to stay with them one time, and I went in, and all of their living room furniture was covered in plastic. I mean, it had clear plastic on all of it. It's, you, you remember, people used to do that, cover their furniture. Maybe you still do. I hope I'm not offending anybody, but, <laughs> you know, all their furniture's covered in plastic and everything, and... You know, I mean, this is family. I mean, these, these are people I love. You know, good grief, I love these folks. And so, you know, we're just sitting there. And so he said, well, how about a piece of pie? Sure. So I go in and sit down in the living room on the plastic-covered furniture and eat my pie. Ooh, that was a no-no. Ooh, I shouldn't have done that. And later on, my, my friend who's married to their daughter said, do you know that in 25 years you're the first person that's ever eaten in the living room in that home? I said, no, but I'd do it again if I could. <laughs> that Christ may be at home in your heart. Now listen, you will never get more of Jesus than you got the moment you were saved. But he can get more of you. He can get at home in your heart. Intimacy is the life of Christ reproduced in you. You see, we're what God wears. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. God wants to grow Christ in the soil of our life. He wants to plant the seed of His Word in us so that He can save us, but not just save us, to sanctify us. And when God is reproducing us in us and He gives us this standard, we say, man, I could never get to there. Listen, what God expects, God empowers. What God expects of you, God empowers you to do. Old things are passed away. There is no such thing as a religion department in my life. Oh, that's religious, this is secular, or this is this. It is to permeate everything about my life. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I, I, I see people and, and they say, well, you know, that's just the way I am. That's just the way I was raised. I say, Where'd you, where's your Bible? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Well, you don't understand. That's the way I raise. Well, get over your raising. And start living like you've had a new birth. And like God's been born inside of you and the Holy Spirit is developing you and growing you and pruning you and feeding you and nurturing you so that in your faith there are characteristics of the new birth that all things have become new, that you are not of the world although you're in the world. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I love that verse. I, I think one day when I die, put that on my tombstone. Write that down. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. You know what? God didn't save us and God didn't put the Holy Spirit inside of us so people would be impressed with us. God saved us and put the Holy Spirit inside of us so people would be impressed with Jesus. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. What needs to impress people about our lives, what needs to be the explanation of our lives is Christ. Not personality, not abilities, not talents, but that when people look at us, they say, you know, there's been a transformation there. There's a difference there. Old things have passed away. New things have become. There's a treasure in an earthen vessel, that plain old peanut butter jar, which is all we are. So that people don't look at us and go, wow, what a person. They look at us and go, wow, what a God. You see, if they talk about us, we didn't get it and they didn't get it. If we become so unexplainable that they talk about Jesus, then we got it and they get it. Now, I know initially they may say, oh, well, you're just so wonderful. But listen, the examination of the life has to be, you know, I, I saw you act like Jesus in that moment. I saw you act like the Lord in that situation. You, you didn't act like you wanted to act. You act like you were supposed to act as a person filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The reason that the Christian witness is not effective in the world today is because the world's not seeing Jesus in us. They're seeing a lot of us. They may see Sherwood, but do they see Jesus in us? Not that they know we go to church here, but do they know that life of Christ is lived out in us and through us in this world? That's the transformation. What can be explained about our lives that has been reproduced by Christ in us? Now here's one of the things that I think is one of the greatest evidences that Christ has changed your life. It's in one word. Joy. Joy. One of the greatest characteristics to me of the Christian faith is joy that would show the life of Christ is joy. C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. Turn to Romans 5. Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. In verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Boy, now that right there would just wipe out most believers. We exalt in our tribulations knowing that Tribulations bring perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. So I exult in the hope of the glory of God. Oh, yeah, boy, let's sing about that. And I exult in tribulations. Let's not talk about that. What makes the difference in the believer's life? That we can praise God in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our trouble. And quite honestly, we don't see enough of that. We exalt and we praise God and we yahoo and we praise the Lord and yippee and we do all, you know, when things are going well, but when the bottom falls out, you know, I mean, some believers, if they get a hangnail, you'd think that it was the end of the world. I mean, you'd think Antichrist had come. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. Well, what are you doing under there? Oh, you just don't know what I'm going through. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul did not write his letters from a vacation villa looking over the French Riviera. He wrote them from a prison surrounded by rats tied to guards. And he said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, Baptist, since you don't get it, I say rejoice. But I tell you, you look at some believers and one little thing goes wrong. And oh, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Hey, everybody's got problems. The reason Christians have problems is to be a witness to the world about how Jesus can give you victory in the midst of your problems. He may not take the problems away, but he can give you joy in the middle of the problems. Billy Sunday said, if you have no joy in your religion, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. Have you ever met these believers that look like they were the cover for the book of Lamentations? I mean, they just, you know dour and sour and sad. You know, look like their mother made them take castor oil every day of their lives growing up. I mean, they just, they just look terrible. They walk down the hall. I see them every Sunday. Walk down the hall. Hey, how you doing? Fine. Fine. Doing fine. Or they just, just walk by you. <laughs> Who are you talking to me? I'm going my way to my Sunday school class. i got to study the Word of God. Get out of my way. You say, we don't have anybody like that. You've been on the wrong hall. <laughs> I've been down that hall. I know those people. I'm going to print their name in my obituary. Folks, it's one thing to sing the doxology. It's another thing to live the doxology. It's one thing to sing praises. It's another thing to live in praise. Walter Craddock says, Take a saint and put him in any condition 
and he knows how to rejoice in the Lord. Is that true of us? Take a saint and put them in any condition, and we know how to rejoice in the Lord. Intimacy is the life of Christ reproducing the believer by the Holy Spirit. No other explanation. Roy Gustafson says, the Holy Spirit neither gathers to a denomination, an ordinance, or a ritual. The Holy Spirit of God gathers to the person of Christ. Now, there are two truths to embrace about the Holy Spirit. Number one, God never calls you without equipping you. That's just basic. I said earlier what He enlists you to do, He empowers you to do. God never calls you without equipping you. And under that, if you could just make a note of this, the Holy Spirit has the copyright on the life of Christ. And you can't use Him unless you work according to His permission. He is not to be used. The Holy Spirit has the copyright on the life of Christ. He and only He can impart the life of Christ through His power in you and through you. Secondly, not only God never calls you without equipping you, God never asks you to do something without reminding you of what He's already done for you. God never asks you to do something without reminding you of what He's already done for you. Remember in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. He didn't say present your bodies until he had already built a case of reminding people about the mercy of God. Based on God's mercy, based on God's goodness, based on God's grace, now you present yourself as a living sacrifice, based on the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now present yourself as a living sacrifice, based on the fact that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to a purpose. Now you present yourself as a living sacrifice. God always reminds us, but when you look at the New Testament epistles, they always begin with doctrine and they go to duty. Paul never writes a letter and begins with what we're supposed to do. He begins with teaching us what God has done for us and then says, therefore, or in light of what God has done for us, this is the way you ought to be living. Ephesians is a rich book of theology, but then it follows with how we're supposed to act as husbands and wives, how we're supposed to act with our children, how we're supposed to act toward our employers. All those things, why? Out of the basis of who we are in Christ. See, what we want to do is we want to drop in and say, now, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. A husband is never going to do that if he doesn't understand who he is in Christ. He's just not. Don't provoke your children wrath. You're never going to do that unless you understand who you are in Christ. And so Paul intentionally builds the case for who we are in Christ, then says, now, in light of that, in light of what God's done for you, in light of what God's equipped you to do and equipped you to live, now, in light of those things, do this. So then the motivation is not keeping rules. It's out of a love response to what the Holy Spirit of God has empowered us to do through Christ. Be filled with the Spirit is a continuous command. It is to never stop. The emphasis is on a moment-by-moment dependence on God. J. Oswald Sanders said the Spirit-filled life is the life in which the Holy Spirit is granted absolute control to the, by the yielded believer and is thus able to endue with power and produce His fruit in us. 
Now, Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. Let's just look at this real quickly. There are five characteristics of filling in intimacy. What does the Spirit-filled life look like? What does intimacy look like? Verse 15, it says you'll walk in wisdom. If I'm intimate with Christ, if I'm filled with the Spirit, I'm going to walk in wisdom. That's verse 15. Verse 16 says I'm going to make the most of my time. I will make the most of my time. I'll use my time wisely. Verse 17, you will know the will of God. You will know the will of God. If I'm intimate with God, then God is going to reveal to me what His will is for my life based on an intimate relationship. Number four, you'll be a worshiper. Verse 19. Spiritual intimacy means I'm a worshiper of God. In verse 20, I will be a thankful person because of what God has done for me. Now, how do I learn to develop this intimate relationship? Easiest illustration I know. One of the things I love about being a pastor in a church this long is watching people have babies. And, you know, we got a lot of them. <laughs> and we got a staff with a lot of them. And, and we got, and just for sake of illustration, I'll just use some of the staff kids, but, but I've watched some of our staff kids as they've been born and as they've grown up and, and then they become, you know, babies and then they just kind of sit there and then they kind of become expressive and then, you know, all of a sudden then it's, they take their first step. Yeah, took the first step. But you know, let's take Grant. Grant wasn't sitting down on the couch one day and good. you know, it's time to walk. Here I am. No, he got up and he did this. Of course, the diaper's big in the back, so you're kind of leaning back this way, and you kind of got to get your head going this way, and they take like one step, and then they go. Don't they? Isn't that right? Now, imagine the kid who lays there and says, I'm never going to try that again. I'm just going to stay here. That hurt. My mother and dad did not prepare me for this. I'll need counseling later. I'm through ever trying to walk again. I will never, ever do that again. Is that it? What does he do? He gets up and he takes another one and realizes, whoa, I got two that time. Until we begin to learn to walk. You know how you develop in the Christian life? One step at a time. You know what walking is? Walking is putting one foot in front of another in a continuous set of actions until all of a sudden you're walking you're not standing, you're not stepping, you're walking. And that's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is about taking a step. Okay, I fall down, I blow it. 
get up. I messed up. I'm so embarrassed. I messed up. Get up. Don't lay there on the floor. Get up and take another step. And before you know it, you'll be able to take four or five before you fall. And then you'll be able to take eight or ten before you fall. And then you get like me, you'll get old and don't know why you got up. The Christian life is a walk. It's a journey. And when I'm walking with God, there are three results. Number one, I realize the abiding presence of Christ. Now, when a kid is young and they're learning to walk, here's how they walk, you know, just like this. They're walking like this all the time because mom and dad have got them. This is, you know, this is our kids going through Disney World a number of years ago. You know, just, you know, and you wonder why they're tired. They're not charismatic. They're just tired. Their just, hands are just stuck up like this, keeping up with mom and dad the whole time, you know. They're just walking with their hands up. What? They're depending on their mom and dad to keep them from falling. And so they hold on. There's security there. When I'm walking with Christ, I realize that I'm abiding with Him and I have His presence and I can hold on to Him. Number two, Christ begins to reproduce His life in me. Christ begins to reproduce His life in me. And number three, all the resources I need are available in Christ. Everything I need to walk in the Christian life is available in Christ. Now one last thing. Intimacy is the life of Christ reproducing the believer by the Holy Spirit through abiding and obeying His Word. And I want to ask you to turn to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, is one of those great chapters that I think probably those of us who are in ministry should preach on for about six weeks every week until we get it. Hebrews 5.11, concerning him we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice, if you would underline the word practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Most Christians are like a bad photograph. They are overexposed and underdeveloped. Most Christians are like a bad photograph. They are overexposed and underdeveloped. The problem with us is not the revelation of God, which is rich and full. The problem is our receptivity to that revelation. He says, by now you should be teachers. You should be training. You should be discipling. You should be nurturing. 
Can I tell you that we've got more young moms in this church that want to be mentored than we have older women that want to be mentors? Now listen, if God's let you live a long time, then you've got something to invest in those who come. That is biblical. It is straight out of the Word of God that the older women are to teach the younger women. And I can tell you there have been two or three times when we've asked for that and we've had a flood of younger women who said, I need somebody to, to help me as a mother, as a, help me as, you know, as a mom, as a wife. I need somebody who's been through it and walked through it. And then we go and say, hey, we need some older ladies to do this. And I want to tell you, it gets as silent as a tomb. Now, ladies, if you're older and if you've been down the road, you are required by God to invest that in a younger woman. Men, the same thing's true with us. If we've walked the road ahead of somebody else, we're supposed to invest that in people. We're supposed to pour that into people. God didn't do that just so we could be a sponge that just soaks up and soaks up because if you're a sponge that just soaks up and soaks up and you never get squeezed out in service, you're going to mold and mildew and your life's going to stink. Because God lets us get full of living water and then he squeezes us out so that that living water refreshes somebody else. And he fills us up and squeezes us out and fills us up and squeezes us out. And we have this dull of hearing, this dull, this slow to learn. He says, by this time, man, you should be eating T-bone. You're still eating baby food. It amazes me how many people in the Christian life never grow up. There's a difference between getting older and becoming mature. And it's a mile apart. I, I think the reason that churches can't do what they need to do is quite honestly because ministers sometimes spend time changing diapers of people that ought to be helping to train others. He says you become dull of hearing. You need to put it into practice. Look at it again. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. Solid food is for the mature. Who are the mature? Those who can discern good from evil. They know their responsibilities. They know what's right. Their, their belief has affected their behavior. The question is sometimes asked, does the word work? Yes, it does, if you'll let it. But it's not just so we can get our heads full and we can spout off things. It is so that we can invest what God has taught us into the lives of other people. Now let's just take me for an example. What if I sat in my study all week working on a sermon and got up here on Sunday and said, you know what? Man, God's taught me a lot this week. God's shown me so much, but I'm telling you something, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just not going to tell y'all what He taught me. I'm just not going to do it. I don't, I don't feel like I can, don't feel like I should, don't want to. Say, so, well, we'll just fire you. Yeah? Well, what's your excuse? What's God taught you this week? Who have you taught? What have you done with it? Who have you shared it with? 
See, God doesn't give us the Holy Spirit in the Bible so we can sit and soak in sour. God gives us the Holy Spirit in the Bible so we can serve the Lord to His glory through what He's taught us from His Word. And we're empowered to do that by the Holy Spirit. Now, over the course of this next year, you're going to see a lot of opportunities for people to serve. If there is one thing that could be keeping this church from experiencing a great movement of God, it could be that we have too many saints sitting and not enough saints serving. And we're overworking the servants, and the ones that aren't serving are just getting fat and lazy. I can look around this room tonight and I can look around this room on some weeks and I know that there are people who are working a full-time job who have families and on top of that they're up here doing two and three and four other things and they never complain. I can also look around this church on a Sunday and see people who go to work and go home and if you ask them to do something, if you ask them to show up or anything, they'll never do it. Now, which one do you think God's going to bless? Which one do you think is most intimately acquainted with the things of God? Which one do you think God wants to use? He wants to use both. But He can only use us to the level of our obedience to the Word of God and abiding in the Word of God and obeying the Word of God and living out the Word of God on a day-to-day basis. Let's be honest, we all know more than we're doing, and we've all heard enough to do more than we're doing. I've got a great book in my library, it's called Dedication and Leadership, it's written by a communist. You know what they do in the communist culture? They raise a person up to be a communist, and when he converts to communism, the first thing they do is they send him out to talk to the factory workers and the people in the labor unions and to share communism with them as they're getting off of work. And as this person wrote this story about communism in the 1920s, he said that we would go and we would stand outside the factories and we would get beaten up. We would come in bruised and broken. Sometimes we'd have an arm broken, a hand broken, our jaw broken. We'd come in, and this is what we learned to say. You have to tell us more so we can go out and share our faith. They didn't come back and say, we don't want to go there anymore. That's too hard. That's too difficult. No, they came back and said, we've got to know more so that in knowing more, we can go out and tell people this communism that has changed our life. Listen, folks, there's two groups that are committed, committed communists and committed Christians. Everybody else is in the middle and up for grabs. Now, you can say it's Muslims or communists or whatever, but I want to tell you something. Anybody that's committed to their faith is doing something about it because their faith has come in them, through them, and it's going out of them. And they can't keep it to themselves because it's made that much of a difference in their life. The Christian life, spiritual intimacy, is the life of Christ reproduced in you by the power of the Holy Spirit 
through abiding in the Word of God. Now let me ask you tonight. Is there intimacy? Or is there just familiarity? Mark, if you get everybody ready, we'll go ahead and start singing in just a moment. I told Terry this week, I, I talked to uh, Warren Wearsby about three times this week about various and sundry things. And, and, and I told her, I said, you know, getting, getting to know him makes me have to work harder and study more. Because he'll say, have you read so-and-so book by so-and-so? And I won't even know who that author is. And I sit there when I talk to him with a pen in my hand and I write down the things that he says because I know that everybody would like to know the Bible like he does, but nobody wants to pay the price that he's paid to get to know it. And so if I want to grow and to develop, I've got to learn to read and to think and to act on what I've read and thought about. I can't just absorb it. I've got to let it work itself out of me. And intimacy is a relationship. It's a sharing. It's a, it's a give and take. It's a cause and effect. It's God in me and God through me. And it's all of that working around and permeating my life in such a way that, that Christ makes a difference. Not just at church, but in all the ways. So I want you to stand. And I want you to take these moments as we sing. The altar's open. You can come and you can pray. You can just stand.